Hello, everyone, and welcome. I'm Miriam Knight. My guest today is Dr. Kenneth Stoller. Dr. Stoller was an undergraduate at UCLA and did his residency at their School of Medicine. He was a practicing board-certified pediatrician for over two decades, focusing on brain-injured children and adults. He pioneered the use of hyperbaric oxygen for treating fetal alcohol syndrome, and he has published numerous articles on using hyperbaric oxygen to treat a range of brain injuries. Dr. Stoller practices functional medicine, also known as integrative medicine, and he is at the leading edge of physicians who use natural supplements and bioidentical hormones alongside conventional drugs. He has been working with patients with brain injuries ranging from traumatic brain injury, stroke, autism, cerebral palsy, MS, and Lyme brain since the late 1990s. And he believes that countless patients have been misdiagnosed with a medical illness when they actually have an untreated infection. His knowledge of esoteric complementary medicine has made him both a sought-after speaker at integrative medicine conferences and a controversial figure because of his attacks on the use of mercury in vaccines and their efficacy in general. He is the author of Oxytocin, The Hormone of Healing and Hope, and his new book that we're going to discuss today is called Incurable Me, Why the Best Medical Research Does Not Make It into Clinical Practice. Welcome, Dr. Stoller. Thanks for interviewing me. Well, you know, I found your book very challenging to read because I kept on cycling among disbelief, outrage, and then deep sadness at all the suffering that could have been avoided. So let's jump into your first premise in the book, which is that infectious agents are actually the root cause of many mental health problems. How did you come to this conclusion? Well, it's, it's easy to come to that conclusion if you actually read the medical literature and see the association. And I guess the, the question is not why would one be surprised about this, but why nothing is being done about it. Uh, I think uh, the primary example I use in the book is Alzheimer's disease. When you have all these autopsy studies showing that 90% of Alzheimer's disease patients actually have a neurospirochetosis, which is really a fancy way of saying the brain is infected with a spirochete-like bacteria, like syphilis. Not, I'm not saying people with Alzheimer's disease have syphilis in their brain, but they have another kind of spirochete. And 25% of those spirochetes belong to a single species, the Borrelia burgdorferi, or Lyme disease-causing spirochete. Wow. Uh, 90%. So can all of these spirochetes, whatever their genus or species, can they be treated with um, antivirals or antibacterials? Yeah, you, you know, Lyme disease is treatable. Now, I'm not talking about the three weeks of antibiotics that the CDC recommends. Um, obviously, if you have 
dementia caused by a spirochete infection, that infection's probably been going on for decades, and three weeks of antibiotics is not going to solve your problem because uh, the Lyme disease-causing bacteria are notoriously difficult to eradicate. And, you know, then we have the other complication that it is not an easy disease to diagnose. There's no consensus on treatment, and there's no test that tells you that you've actually accomplished the eradication. So it's a very confusing, uh, very nebulous area, but that should um, be a catalyst for more conscious research and diagnostic techniques not to bury one's head in the sand like the CDC seems to have done. Um, I mean, just it was just three years ago when they announced, um, gee, it's not 30,000 new cases of Lyme disease every year, it's 330,000 new cases of Lyme disease every year. And it's interesting that they would say that, and you contrast the lack of alarm, the lack of panic, about 330,000 new cases of Lyme disease every year with a couple of cases of Zika virus here and there, and there's never been any confirmed association between the Zika virus and microcephaly, and yet it's a, you know, a public health emergency. Uh, it doesn't make any sense. Um, it's, it's almost as if, oh, big deal, uh, 330,000 new cases of Lyme disease happen every year. Well, that's not really a problem. Why isn't it really pro a problem? Lyme disease can kill you. Lyme disease can give you Alzheimer's disease. Lyme disease can cause any number of mental illnesses, you know, if the organism happens to get in your brain. So why isn't that uh, something that's worthy of a public health emergency? So it's almost as if uh, we're kind of behind the looking glass um, in this situation where people are doing things that don't make any sense whatsoever. Well, I think that's a very good analogy, because reading your book, I really did feel like Alice in Wonderland. So um, have you had any success in treating Alzheimer's specifically as you would treat Lyme disease and getting a remission? Yeah, I, I've treated, you know, uh, several people with, you know, that had the diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease. And it's, it's a struggle because often their support system isn't good and treating Lyme disease requires a lot of support and a lot of um, conscious understanding of what you're doing. Um, this is not something a cognitively impaired person can do on their own. Uh, but when that happens, there is improvement, just as it, what's happening now with Chris Christopherson, who was inappropriately diagnosed with Lyme disease, I mean uh, Alzheimer's disease two years ago, and finally got his correct diagnosis, started getting treatment, and he's recovering. Mm -hmm. I was fascinated in reading the life cycle of these spirochetes and how they um, kind of burrow in and protect themselves which uh, explains why they're so notoriously difficult to treat. I, I've had friends with Lyme disease, and, and it's taken them years to get past it. Uh, so a, are you saying that... Yeah, well, it, are you saying a, that... 
<laughs> go ahead, go ahead. We have a uh, we have a little delay between our voices, so that we're stepping on each other. Right. I wanted to know if um, my friends who have Lyme, who have had Lyme's disease and kind of have overcome it and returned to function, are they at risk for getting Alzheimer's down the line because the Lyme disease uh, has gone underground? Right. So there's two rate limiting steps in treating Lyme disease. One is this is an organism that slathers itself with biofilm which is in biofilm is the same thing you brush off your teeth every day. So imagine millions of these organisms existing in your bone marrow, for example, covered with this glycoprotein that protects it from your immune system, from antibiotics. So that's hurdle number one. How do you get rid of the biofilm? Hurdle number Mm -hmm. two is this is a bacteria that um, uh, leaves persister cells. It's not the only bacteria that uses persister cells, but it is one of them. And persister cells are kind of like um, zombies. They're, they're the living dead, the undead. You can't kill them because they're metabolically dead already. Um, they're hibernating and they're waiting for the coast to be clear. So presumably they'll wait for you to be off of your antibiotics before they'll wake up. And, mm-hmm. and so pulsing therapy becomes very important to try to catch these persister cells. And, um, and so, yes, so I would use the example of when the Limerix vaccine came out 15 years ago. Many of the people who lined up for this vaccine were people who previously had Lyme disease and didn't want to get it again. That makes sense, right? Mm-hmm. Well, what happened was the Limerix vaccine was one of the proteins on the surface of the organism that causes Lyme disease. And when they injected that protein into people who previously had Lyme disease, what they found was that it reactivated their sleeping infections. So they were not symptomatic. They had persister cells. And when the persister cells detected the fact that there seemed to be an ongoing infection in the body, they woke up because, why why not wake up? The coast must be clear because we're detecting this particular surface antigen in this person's blood. So it's a very sophisticated organism. And uh, it's um, quite difficult to eradicate. And, you know, I can never tell one of my patients they have eradication because there's no test that confirms that. You're always, mm-hmm. you're always in remission. Vigilant remission is what I call it for my patients. Just before the break, we were talking about the uh, treatment of Lyme disease, the difficulty of treatment of Lyme disease. And I was asking about the use of supportive therapies alongside um, the the antibiotic regimen, the pulsed antibiotic regimen. Um, How important and what kind of supportive therapies uh, do you use? Well, um, I use, there's there's several that I've found that are actually helpful. 
Uh, and you have to understand that, you know, if you've had this infection for years and years, your immune system may be quite discombobulated. Uh, so that means now you have uh, problems that uh, problems detoxifying uh, pesticides and heavy metals. So your body is compromised in that area. So there's a lot of uh, uh, ancillary instructions that go with treating a Lyme disease patients to help them improve their detoxification abilities, the, to heal their guts, to uh, just bring their uh, ability to have a, a higher sense of wellness forward. Because um, when you when you treat this organism. Uh, you can get exacerbations of the very symptoms that it was giving you. So it, it, it's sometimes very problematic to treat if, if you have, uh, if this infection has given you schizoaffective disorder, uh, your symptoms are going to be increased schizoaffective symptoms. And, and you can imagine pushing somebody into schizophrenia is is not what you know you don't want the cure to be worse than the than the, the infection itself mm-hmm. so it would be best for a lot of patients if they could be admitted to a Lyme hospital but there is no Lyme hospital there's no Betty Ford Lyme center where you can park yourself for a few weeks while you get over the worst of the die off symptoms from this organism and not everyone has a problem getting rid of it not everyone has uh, some people just their symptoms improve right away. You know, there's no die off. There's there's no getting worse first. But um, it, the whole spectrum from not noticing anything improving in your body because you do, you don't feel sick to begin with. Because most people with Lyme disease are not sick. Just like tuberculosis, ninety percent of people with tuberculosis are asymptomatic and. I can't say that's 90% of Lyme patients, but it's it's a it's a it's a high number because I you know when you take that figure that I gave you in the first part of the show, 330,000 new cases of Lyme disease every year, and let's say that's conservative, that it could be much higher than that, and you add that let's say over two or three decades. What is 330,000 new cases every year over two or three decades? And you're realizing you're dealing with millions upon millions of Americans. But it's not just Americans. This is a global pandemic. So there's areas of India that have been studied where the adult population has antibodies to this organism at 18%. Well, do you know what 18% of the Indian population is? I mean, I can tell you what it is in the United States. It's 50, it's 50 million people. Mm-hmm. And so you can see where a bureaucracy like the CDC would certainly not come out and announce, hey, I just wanted to let everyone know that uh, uh, 50 million Americans might be infected with Lyme disease. And uh, oh, it seems to be the cause of Alzheimer's disease. And it can kill you, you know, it can give you Lyme myocarditis. And, oh, and by the way, we don't really have a good test for it. There's no consensus on treatment. We can't tell you when you're done getting treated. Uh, and goodbye. You know, what would happen <laughs> if they made that announcement? Okay? Yeah. That's why there's no announcement like that. Um, 
you know, now if, they, if there was a pharmaceutical company that could sell a vaccine for it, that would be a different story. They'd be glad to scare you then because, you know, they're, they're going to get paid off by the pharmaceutical company to scare people into getting their vaccine. But this is not a disease that fits a vaccine model. For a disease to fit a vaccine model, the antibodies the vaccine creates has to somehow mitigate the severity of the illness. Well, it doesn't matter how many antibodies you have to Lyme disease, you're not getting rid of it. Why is there no vaccine for syphilis? doesn't matter how many antibodies you have to syphilis. You're not getting rid of it without penicillin. So, mm -hmm. um, uh, but that's where the money is. The money is in vaccines. And so for the last 30 years, all the research money has gone into creating a vaccine that can never be created for this organism. And a, a, a select group of academicians who have been bought out by Big Pharma, and of course the CDC has been bled out by Big Pharma, they've wasted all this time trying to come out with a vaccine because it's, a, it's been a good gravy train for everybody. It's, 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 it's criminal. Well, you did mention in your book that there are certain measures that you can take to remove the amyloid plaque um, call, that is associated with Alzheimer's. Um, can you tell us about that? I'm thinking of the turmeric and vitamin D. Right. So, yes. So, uh, nice, healthy vitamin D levels and curcumin, the active ingredient in turmeric, helps deconstruct these amyloid plaques. But, you know, more important than, you know, that little tidbit there is there was research done in 2014 at Rutgers University that found a direct link between the chemical DDE and late onset Alzheimer's disease. And DDE is one of the two metabolites of DDT. DDT doesn't really degrade very much in the environment. That's, you know, it's one of its problems, just like glyphosate doesn't biologically degrade. So DDT will turn into DDE, and these Rutgers University researchers found that there was this direct link. Well, what does that have to do with Lyme disease? What it has to do with Lyme disease is these organochlorine pesticides like DDT and DDE, which for all intents and purposes is DDT, uh, impact your immune system. And if your immune system is not functioning as well as it should, then you're susceptible to not only infections, but worse infections than you would normally have. So, you know, why does one person have a, a Lyme disease infection in their brain and another person doesn't? Well, because their immune system was compromised. And I talk about this many times in the book. You do not get paralysis from the polio vaccine in most cases, unless you have been pre-applied with pesticides. So a great deal of my book talks about the horrible legacy that our overuse of pesticides has caused. And, and while I was researching this Rutgers University study about the connection between DDT and Alzheimer's disease, I wanted to know, well, where are these people getting exposed to DDT? I thought DDT was banned. Everyone thinks DDT was banned. 
Don't mm-hmm. you? Didn't you think DDT was banned? Absolutely. Yes. Well, so there was a, a general use ban in 1972 in the United States. But there was another pesticide. As if they were anticipating that DDT would be banned, there is another, another pesticide called Dicofol. And it's made by Dow. This pesticide is identical to DDT, except it has one single hydroxyl group, an alcohol group attached to it. Which, for the lay audience, means the difference between Dicofol and DDT is the difference between two identical pigs, but one has beer breath. So, (laughs) for all practical purposes, DDT has not been banned. And in the rest of the world, the World Health Organization, the WHO, has told third world countries, go ahead and use it with abandon because you need to get rid of a m- malaria, even though using DDT to get rid of malaria is not sustainable, causes a lot of collateral damage, including apparently Alzheimer's disease, and, and, and it increases cancer. So some people are familiar with this cancer called Burkett's lymphoma that children in Africa get. And, and it, it's been the thinking that, oh, when you have malaria and Epstein-Barr virus, you get this lymphoma. It's not the malaria with the Epstein-Barr virus that gives you cancer. It's the Epstein-Barr virus with the DDT that gives you cancer. But we don't talk about that. And even today, almost 100 years since the beginning of some of the worst polio outbreaks in the United States. We do not understand that it was the overuse of DDT. And before DDT, it was lead arsenate pesticides. That in combination with this class of viruses called enteroviruses, that it caused paralysis. So... We didn't talk about that because we need DDT. We have to learn how to get along with it. So we ignore it. We ignore it. We ignore this poison. And mm-hmm. the, insanity, the insanity of this is we fixated on a single type of enterovirus as causing paralysis. I'll use India as an example, which manufactures DDT and uses DDT with abandon. They have congratulated themselves because in 2011, they've eradicated the polio virus. Well, the polio virus is one of hundreds of enteroviruses. And, and many of those enteroviruses can cause paralysis if you have been applied with the appropriate cotoxant, you know, such as an organochlorine pesticide. Well, the, the rate of non-polio acute flaccid paralysis in India has been getting higher and higher and higher every year. It's totally out of control, and you don't talk about it, okay? Because they were paid to get rid of the polio virus. This is about money. This is smoke and mirrors, this fixation on a single virus causing this disease. It's not the virus, it's the pesticides. And we have the same thing happening now with Zika. The Zika virus didn't cause microcephaly in Brazil. 
It was the pesticides. They put the pesticides in the tap water, for God's sake. So now, now we have um, idiots, idiots using organophosphate pesticides in Florida and other states to treat mosquitoes. Oh, my God. We'll talk about this more later. All right. Before the break, you were talking about the polio vaccine, and you make, uh, you have quite a lot of coverage of vaccines in general, the use and abuse. And you did mention that um, they were a major source of, of uh, money, income for the pharmaceutical industry. Uh, where do you think we are going wrong with the use of vaccines? Oh, where are we going right is more like it. That would be a shorter <laughs> conversation. Um, you know, right before the Take break, I was talking. I was talking about the Zika virus, and and what what's happened in northeastern Brazil is that pregnant women were being vaccinated while they were pregnant with the DTP vaccine, which has documented a history of causing microcephaly if it's given to uh, pregnant women. You combine and DTP is. The diphtheria, pertussis, and tetanus vaccine. Right. Now, you combine that vaccinating a pregnant woman with this vaccine with the fact that they're drinking tap water that's, that's been purposely laced with this larvicide chemical they were using. And is it any wonder why their babies were born deformed? No, it isn't. Because I can tell you there's no microcephaly from the Zika infection in Polynesia. There's no microcephaly from the Zika infection in Colombia. This was essentially a hoax because there are factions within the government, such as the CDC, the World Health Organization. They have to keep feeding themselves to get funded. So there has to be one crisis after another, just like the military-industrial comp complex needs to create one conflict around the globe after another so it can keep getting fed, it can keep getting funded. So the latest, the latest funding scare was that the Zika virus causes microcephaly, which it doesn't, and, and so you know, the, you know the CDC and pharmaceutical companies now need billions of dollars, and what a surprise, there's a vaccine waiting in the wings that's going to solve everyone's problem. It's not going to solve any, everyone's problem because the virus doesn't cause microcephaly. This is all smoke and mirrors, wealth transfer, and um, it's criminal. It's absolutely criminal. So now they're spraying the population with organophosphate pesticides. You are going to see uh, increased cases of microcephaly now, which they'll blame on the virus, when people are getting exposed to more pesticides. It's a self-perpetuating uh, disaster that's going on, and no one's watching these people to see who's, you know. Uh, and, of course, you know, spraying pesticides on the population, that should be the last thing you do, last resort. How did it become the first resort? Well, because, uh, geez, does Governor Rick Scott's wife have something financially to do with the company that's spraying the pesticides? Um, someone should check into that, right? There's no one checking into this. It's, this is a very sick... We have uh, a very sad situation 
where corporations have bled out the government, where we have essentially have what I think it's called an upside-down oligarchy, and um, uh, we're being poisoned as a result of it. And uh, illnesses are not getting treated because no one's making money treating those illnesses, and there's a lot of unnecessary suffering. Well, I'd like to ask you, you when you went to medical school, uh, you were taught the conventional route of immunizations and so on. And I'm sure the majority of doctors today really would like to cure their patients. Why do you think they are ignorant of the causal connections that you have been bringing to the fore? Well, it's, it's by design. And, and first of all, in medical school, you learn nothing about vaccinations, except that you get them, you give them. And in residency, you don't learn anything about vaccinations other than you give them. You don't know what's in them. You don't know how they work. I mean, people, people think that uh, some of these vaccinations stop you from getting these diseases. They don't stop you from getting the disease. They may stop you from having some, some of the symptoms of disease, but you don't necessarily, uh, like with the pertussis vaccine, you don't, you don't become immune to pertussis, whooping cough. You, in fact, when you get the vaccine, you can be coughing or spreading that bacteria for five weeks after you get that vaccine. So it doesn't make you less communicable. It, it, it stops you from, if you get the whooping cough, having these spasms of coughing. So, you know, one of the symptoms, it stops one of the mm -hmm. symptoms from happening. So um, there's a complete lack of understanding of how they work, when they work, because they don't always work. Um, so, so you said in your book, no. you said in your book that uh, get, giving the whooping cough vaccine to uh, people in the household with a new baby uh, is particularly insane. Probably one of the worst things you can do, but that's the current recommendation because physicians don't really understand how vaccines work. They were purposely not taught how they work. This is a multi, tens of hundreds of billions of dollars cash cow for the pharmaceutical industry. And why are they so protected by the government, you ask? Why isn't somebody doing about this? Well, first of all, the government's in bed with the pharmaceutical companies. Many, many of the agencies, the CDC, the NIH, they own patent rights on some of the technology that's used in these vaccines. Do you think they want to interfere with their source of income? Of course they don't. But even worse than that is, you, I, I talk about this in the book, how um, it's, you know, offensive biological warfare research is illegal, but biodefense research is not. Vaccines are biodefense. So under the, under the umbrella of vaccines and biodefense, the United States has probably never stopped offensive biological warfare research. So this is tied into the military-industrial complex, and essentially, war is being uh, fought, but it's a war against us. 
It's not a war against some enemy or some infectious disease enemy. It's against us. You did point out that uh, Lyme, Connecticut, after which Lyme disease was named, was just a few miles from a biological warfare facility? It, uh, the animal, it was in, on Plum Island, Lab 257. In fact, there's a wonderful book called Lab 257 that talks about the history of this animal biodefense research facility on, on uh, Plum Island, which is just you know, north of Long Island and very close to Lyme, Connecticut, where an ex-SS microbiology, Nazi microbiologist, was the first uh, leader of this facility, and his specialty was using uh, uh, insects as disease vectors because the plan was originally to wipe all, all the domestic animals in the Soviet Union until someone with a brain decided, and if we do that, uh, who is going to feed the Soviet Union if we wipe out all their domestic animals? So they decided maybe that wasn't such a good idea. Um, <clears throat> but um, I'm sure that these ticks uh, and specially bred versions of the Borrelia burgdorferi bacteria were bred and released from Plum Island either intentionally or unintentionally. I think when you read the book Lab 257, you'll get a, a better sense that it was intentional that these uh, organisms were released. And there is a scientific paper that I have on my website, uh, incurable-me.com, that talks about somewhere in the last 200 years, a special clone of the Borrelia burgdorferi bacteria was created that is so much more virulent than what's found in nature. And I think the timeline is not it happened in the last 200 years. It's more like it happened in the last 60 uh, or so years when this mm -hmm. facility was, you know, starting up. So um, that's, the, that's the legacy I'm talking about, this offensive biological warfare research, which is now hidden under the guise of vaccine research. Do you, yeah, uh, you have some very challenging uh, extrapolations of this. Uh, the, the more charitable explanations could be it's sort of an own goal by mistake. Um, the less charitable explanations go into the territory of conspiracy theory. But um, let, let's focus back on um, the positive things that you have found uh, to, to act as countermeasures to these infections. You mentioned something called Alinea. What is that? So um, as much as I come down hard on big pharmaceutical companies, uh, that's how wonderful uh, the level of praises I give to certain pharmaceutical agents, and one of them is a drug called Alinea, uh, which is made by Romark uh, Pharmaceutical Companies in Florida. And this drug is a, uh, sold as an antiparasitic drug, 
and it has activity against many viruses, um, including the Zika virus. And by the way, uh, Florida State University announced last month that a, um, a drug that's uh, an antiparasitic drug, not Alinea, but another one, um, uh, can eradicate the, the Zika virus from the human body. Wow. Uh, uh, that news, however, is not going to go mainstream. No big pharmaceutical company is going to be making massive profits from a generic drug that's been around for years. No need for the vaccine. That's where the money is, man. Oh, my God. Okay, well, we'll pick this up when we come back from our final break. We're speaking with Dr. Kenneth Stoller. His book is Incurable Me. His website is incurable-me.com. Bringing you the best of the conscious minds in the world. Om Times Radio, your conscious lifestyle on steroids. Being a radio host on IOM FM allows you to build your show on a rich platform with the power of the Internet to fulfill your outreach goals and connect with a very specialized and global online audience, unlimited by time and distance. Home Times Radio will provide you with web relevance, a recognizable conscious brand, and with the standard of excellence that has accompanied every single Home Times endeavor. Host your show with Home Times Radio Network. Join me, Maggie Chula, on Mondays at noon Eastern for Mastermind with Maggie. Let's work together in a mastermind. We can resolve life's problems and create goals for the future. Build action steps empowering you to create your life in partnership with your divine source of light, your soul. Manifesting your goals can be simple and easy, so come with your problems and leave with a plan. The Akashic Master Teachers and I are waiting to help you. This is Carly Simon for LifeBeat. The music industry fights AIDS. The AIDS crisis isn't over. There have been amazing scientific breakthroughs, but people are still dying, and your local AIDS organization needs your help more now than ever. Volunteer and make a difference. Welcome back. We just heard an ad for an AIDS charity. What do you think of the AIDS virus and its you know, ideology the, uh, and treatment? <laughs> well, uh, you know, as you know from reading my book, I purposely, and I say, I left out any mention about the HIV virus because um, that would require a book about, you know, in itself, that, that hornet's mm-hmm. nest. But we were talking about Alinea, that drug... Uh, just before the break, and I wanted to, um, you know, just have closure on that. This is an antiparasitic drug that has strong antiviral and antibacterial properties, and I found a few years ago that it was capable of destroying the biofilm of the Borrelia bacteria. So that at least deals with half of the problem in treating Lyme patients, is to get rid of the biofilm the organism protects itself with. And then mm-hmm. that leaves, you know, the issue of the persister cells. But while, you know, while we were on the break, I just, I just pulled up a, 
article that just came out today in the Journal of the American Medical Association. So it's online as of today, September 14, 2016. Call to action on neurotoxin exposure in pregnant women and children. And it's a free article so the public can cite it. Um, but uh, it starts out saying, citing an alarming increase in childhood neurodevelopmental disorders such as autism and attention deficit disorders, a group of scientists and health professionals and children health advocates is calling for increased monitoring, assessment, and reduction of neurotoxic chemicals. And, and I, of course, I applaud that, and I'm glad it's in, in JAMA, and, it, and the article ends with, you know, the fact that physicians in particular have been largely silent about this issue has created the sense that it's not real. And I think they can help shed light on an important, on a key importance of this. Well, physicians are silent on this because physicians are not educated about environmental medicine. And that's done by design. Physicians are trained. They're not educated and they're trained in, a, in such a way that they have an incredible bias on treating their patients with patentable medicines. And this was started by the Rockefeller Foundation, who basically took over medical education in this country. And so physicians were deliberately not taught about causalities in many cases. They were not taught about nutrition, because this would interfere with the sale of patentable drugs. Why, why tell somebody to take extra vitamin D when you can sell them something very expensive and make money off of it? So, so well, it, it, like I, as we started out this conversation, it's almost like we have two realities going at the same time. We have all this wonderful information in the medical literature. We have all these warnings. We're exposing ourselves to too many neurotoxins and pesticides and... PCBs and mercury and heavy metal, all this stuff, it's all out there. Congressional hearings have been held about this. In fact, in my book, I, I have the correspondence I sent to Senator Barbara Boxer in California about this, saying, thank you for holding that wonderful uh, congressional hearing where it was decided that, gee, we have too much autism in this country and it's due to an environmentally triggered uh, problem but then nothing gets done about it. And, and do you think that that is because of, yes? It's money. It's because of money. You're interfering with other people, corporations' ability to make money, and you don't do this in the United States of corporations. Mm -hmm. But the power is in the public. We have the power to change this. We just have to get educated. We have to teach each Not other this we. Is what's going on. Not only we, but doctors also. I, I think this is well, one of the things that you point out, that they don't take either have the time or take the time to read medical literature that's out there. And, yes, keep them, keep them too busy to find out what's really going on. Mm -hmm. So what would you suggest that our listeners do? What kind of action steps to protect themselves and also to bring this to the attention of their legislators? 
Well, I, uh, of course, uh, I'm going to be biased about this. The first action step is to, re- is to read my book, Incurable Me. Um, <laughs> that, would be a good, that would be a good start. Um, uh, I second that you, motion. You, okay, so you, you, start, you start with your circle, with your family, with your friends, and you do what you need to do to protect your family, to help your friends, and then you start being proactive about detoxification and uh, treating your illnesses, and then and then petitioning uh, legislators, getting stories in the news media. I mean, why are we drinking fluoridated water? That's another big topic in the book. The fluoride is more toxic than lead. I, I tell my the, my uh, my little patients that if you want to, instead of opening up a lemonade stand, if you opened up a, t- a homemade toothpaste stand and sweetened it with that natural good taste of lead, you'd be arrested for poisoning people. Well, how come you can find another heavy metal, that fluoride, that is more toxic than lead, and it's completely legal to sell in in, in toothpaste in the stores? when there is no evidence that it really benefits anyone. That's what I'm saying. That's why, that's why I, I tell people, just because you don't see the Cheshire cat in the tree doesn't mean we're in, on the right side of the looking glass. But you can create balance, you can create sanity in your whatever, wherever you find yourself. And that's how it has to start. Now, you talk about... Uh Alinea, for example, as being uh, helpful in eradicating uh, parasitic infections, but you have to go to a doctor for it. Uh, do you need to find, will any doctor prescribe it, or, or do you need to find somebody who practices integrative medicine? Well, um, physicians are not up to speed on the benefits of Alinea, and uh, many third party payers won't even cover the drug because of its expense. But um, there are other ways of obtaining it. I mean, people can get Alinea from overseas at uh, a fraction of the cost in the United States. And in fact, the pharmaceutical company itself has set up a foundation where people whose insurance won't pay for it can get it at a significant discount. But um, uh, physicians have to find out about this, this drug, it's not a drug that most... Oh, this, that, that's a drug that treats uh, Girardia, right, or cryptospirosis. What do you want it for, you know? Um, mm-hmm. They only know what they know. And, um, and the pharmaceutical companies have basically control over what physicians think and what they know. So uh, educating physicians is as important as it is is probably going to require the most effort and, and have the least to show for it. It's the public that needs to get educated. And I think the Internet has been doing a fairly good job. There are a lot of people who do their research on the Internet before they even go to see their doctor, and their doctors don't particularly like it. And an open internet is very important. Yes, it's trolled by you know people who are hired by various corporations, so it's a, a potential landmine of disinformation. But you can mm-hmm. find the truth uh, thanks to the internet. Wouldn't give it up. 
an open, an open internet. <laughs> let's let's hope that that doesn't get taken away. So, are you optimistic for uh, the awakening of of the population? I'm optimistic, but it's not going to happen as soon as I would like. I, and I say this in the book that it's going to be ten years before we realize there's no such thing as Alzheimer's disease, that it's an infection with uh, Borrelia bacteria in conjunction with being poisoned by, you know, various pesticides. That, it, that's mm-hmm. going to take another 10 years to sink in to everyone's consciousness. And right now there's too much money involved in, in pretending we don't know what causes it. We know what causes it. Mm. Well, we certainly have been seeing people uh, vote with their money in the grocery stores, turning more and more toward organic food and, and um, organic farming. Uh, and it's, and it's um, some, uh, voting with your pocketbook is going yeah. to be a very important tool. Please, uh, please get Dr. Stiller's book. Um, it's it's not an easy read. It's heavy in science. It's heavily documented. Um, your eyes might turn up into the top of your head, but it is important information. And try and influence any medical people in your circles to get a hold of this book and educate themselves. This is not a joke, people. This is our future. And it's looking pretty bleak unless we take our health into our own hands. We're the ones who are most immediately impacted by the pesticides, by the, by the uh, viruses. And for heaven's sakes, educate yourself about vaccinations, vaccinations for you and your children. Um, I, have you, Dr. Stoller, um, been... Uh, <laughs> afraid, actually, for, for your safety um, because of your outspoken stands. I am such a little fish in this pond that I'm not worried. Well, let's hope that um, uh, you, you create much more information of, of such value. Dr. Kenneth Stoller, author of Incurable Me, website incurable-me.com. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you, Mary. And thank you for listening, and we'll see you next week. In the meantime, visit my website, ncreview.com, and the new website, happyguide.com. That's H-A-P-I-G-U-I-D-E.com. You'll be happily surprised. Until next week, I'm Miriam Knight. Thanks for listening. Goodbye.